You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Hi, uh, I'm Marianne Seacart. By way of a very brief introduction, I'm a newspaper journalist. I write a column for The Independent. Uh, I present some Radio 4 programs and I do various other things, including chairing a think tank. And I'm a Names Not Numbers virgin. I'm also a Port Marion virgin, which is quite odd because Clough Williams Ellis, the creator of this fantastic village, was my aunt's uncle. And uh, it's taken me 50 years to get here. I've always wanted to, so I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, now, tomorrow, I'm sure you're all going to be told that um, slow is the new fast. Well, tonight, fast is the new slow, because we've only got half an hour to talk about three very, very disparate subjects, incl both, including both the talking and questions and answers from the audience. So we're going to run along at a very quick clap. Uh, and they're very different subjects, but actually, amazingly, they're quite interconnected because we've got whether the book is sustainable. The book, apparently, the printed book is now known as legacy media in the digital business, which is a bit depressing for people like Simon and me who are in the even more legacy media of newspapers. Um, Bedwira is going to talk about Methodism. Simon's father was a Methodist lay preacher. Yeah. Oh, well, close enough, anyway. <laughs> and uh, I'm now going to hand over to Adrian to do the introductions. I'm Adrian Monk. I'm with the World Economic Forum. Uh, most of my life spent in television news, which is neither sustainable nor enduring. Uh, so I suppose I'm intellectually at odds with, uh, with, with the agenda. Um, we're going to run this, uh, unfortunately, in traditional television style, which is to say we're going to give everyone a quick burst of uh, downloading their thoughts, and then we're going to open it to you guys to talk to them. It's three sets of individual ideas. Kicking us off um, optimistically on the sustainability of the book is uh, this gentleman, John Mitchinson, who is a publisher and probably to those of you who inhabit the world of television like me, most famous as the sort of co-founder of QI, um, quite intelligent. Is that quite intelligent? Interesting. Quite interesting. There you go. Um, he's going to talk about the sustainability of the book. Three minutes, John, and then <laughs> questions from all these people. Go for it. Three minutes. It's an easy gig. Come on. I mean, the book, let's just think about it just for a moment. The whole history of our planet. All the stories, the ideas, the knowledge preserved in this sublime piece of technology um, the idea that that isn't sustainable, it's a bit like saying human beings, that our thoughts, are, our ideas are not sustainable. Of course it's sustainable. The thing at the moment is obviously everybody's very, very het up about the fact that there are other ways of reading books other than buying something that's made out of paper. That seems to me an entirely uninteresting uh, route of inquiry. It's about as interesting as do I prefer a paperback to a hardback. People who read will read books in every possible medium. And at the moment, the real, the real mystery to me is when you have the ability now Technically, you could send a book to everybody in the world who has access to a computer screen for nothing. Why are publishers such miserable bastards? Why are they all crying into their beer and complaining about the digital revolution as though it was the, the end of the world? It's, it's, uh, that, that seems to me to be the first paradox. I mean, the second paradox, I guess, is uh, their misery is also not shared by the people who are consuming this stuff. Anybody who goes to a literary festival, there are now 148 literary fe festivals in the UK, 80,000 reading groups. It's the most literate society we've ever had. Um, the only people who think 
and it has traditionally been the case. The only people who think that the book is under threat are probably the people in this room. Or worse than that, the people who are publishing the books themselves, who are the first always to commit. It was first it was music hall, then it was theatre, then it was radio, then it was television, then laughably in the 1980s it was a thing called CD-ROM. The book has been killed. So every generation, every generation of liberal, bien pensant, uh, readers finds a reason to say that the thing that they secretly like doing at night in the, in the comfort of their own bedroom is in fact about to be killed. Yeah, look, hold on a second. Can we, can we quickly put this uh, controversial proposition to the test? Who really in this room thinks the book is under mortal threat? Come on, publishers, out yourselves. Brilliant. Look at the, you see, they're looking. But, but, but John, I, I, I read a couple of days ago that. Um, a third of undergraduates say they have no interest in a printed book. Now, maybe they're reading them all on Kindles, I don't know. 20% of school leavers... Why are we even worried about this? 20% of school leavers have never read a book. But do they not spend the sort of... You know, you know what I love about that is 80% of school readers have. have read a book. <laughs> why is it always presented that way around? You can't... I mean, the thing about... One of the amazing things about books is... You can't really get some... I mean, people know what the brilliant thing is. They have 100% product recognition. There is nobody in the world who says... You know, there's a brilliant thing, actually. They did a brilliant advert for a book on uh, presenting it as, a, as the new interactive device. It's a, I'll, 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 I'll circulate with you. And it's wonderful. It is a sublime piece of technology that also happens to lend itself to being electronically, digitally reproduced. This seems to me, we're at the, this is the Paleolithic as far as digital publishing is concerned. We don't, we don't know a, a millionth of what's possible. Once you, start to con, once you start to take text and images and music, we're going to have books in the future the like of which we can't dream of. So the book itself is not a problem. There is a short-term economic problem for a, a business model, which I think has outrun its course, which is the traditional business model. And the real problem with that is that publishers have no contact with readers. The whole thing about literary festivals and reading groups, those people, publishers have to go through another group of people called retailers. What publishing has become is the research and development uh, section of the retailer. And, you know, if you are a young, ambitious, lots of my friends are publishers. I was a publisher for a long time. You do not have that direct contact, that nurturing contact with the people who are actually consuming, reading and talking about your product. Both a concentration span and a distraction problem. I'm thinking, particularly amongst the young, that when we were young, basically, you, you know, in the evening, you either watch telly or you curled up with a book. Now, my children, they do Facebook and Facebook chat and BBMing and Twitter. Can we, do we count Facebook and, as and, a book because it's got book in the title? <laughs> well, it's interesting that it has got. It's interesting that it's got book in the title, but no, I don't know if they ever will be. I mean, my experience. I've got three, three, three boys. They go. Through, I mean, you know, they. Of course, you would say, well, of course, your children read. What about other people's children? You, your children are bound to read because, actually, my children are much less likely, but children that publishers hate books, in my experience. But they, they, find, they find a way through into it. One of, I found my, my, my eldest furtively reading a Kindle, which I'd given him, for, for, uh, but he was reading Sherlock Holmes, which I thought was... I mean, I had no idea that he was reading Sherlock Holmes. So, hang on, have you chosen the easiest title to defend this totally. evening? Is there anyone here who doesn't agree with John that the book is not sustainable? Now he's framed the book as actually digital, because I thought he was going to come here wielding hefty chunks of print and text. I love and hefty chunks of print. And defend the physical book and say that, you know, the kindly things were killing it. Well, ask me the specific question. Will the physical book die? No, of course it won't either. Because it's also... It's, how many people have got electric toothbrushes? Yeah. How many people have also got a toothbrush that isn't electric? LAUGHTER 
how, how many people haven't got a toothbrush at all? <laughs> OK. No, I don't think we want to. It yeah. is time to move on. Yep. It is. We've, we've done it. Do you want to introduce the... Actually, uh, I can... No, you, yeah, I'll introduce that. But better is, better's a, a multimedia visual artist based in Carnarvon, and he's heard the format. He knows it's three minutes and then interaction with the audience. And so with that in mind, I believe with his background in the eccentric, the idiosyncratic and the unpredictable, he's completely going to ignore that. Yeah, I, I think I've been missed this now. I was told like seven, maybe ten minutes. But I'm going to give you a sermon, then you tell me to be quiet when... I've reached the end of your attention span, I guess. <laughs> I'm going to need a lectern, though, is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's my graphic. Be sure to tell me when you, you've had enough. No worries, mate. A performance begins with an email. It's from someone who tells you that they like what you do. On occasion, it begins with a phone call. I once accepted an invite to perform whilst cycling. It made me feel good about myself, like a talented French man being offered a promotion on holiday. They want a performance, and sometimes they give you a title to work to. Something like politics of the body. A few years ago, I was invited to perform at a group show opening and was surprised to see that my estate agents were going to be exhibiting with me. <laughs> I then realized it was one of those stupid artist duos who only use their surnames, Schroeder and Snook. Hopkins and Bosch, Higgins and Piggins. Would I be foolish to imagine that these people seek each other out in the same way that lawyers searching for partners with quirky names do? <laughs> Nobody wants to team up with me because of my boring surname. I'm always a little envious of the safety that being in a duo provides. Someone to lean on. A problem shared is indeed a problem halved. But never forget that an artist's fee shared is also an artist's <laughs> fee halved. That must really rankle and rankle. When I perform... I always choose a costume I would feel comfortable wearing if I had to make good my escape in the catastrophic event of a bomb blast or an earthquake. An outfit I would be happy to be rescued in. Those souls who perform naked and covered in paint run the risk of being found by a fireman, or a policeman, or even an earthquake dog. <laughs> Under the rubble, naked and covered in paint. And though it may well be that the dust from the explosion clinging to the performer's body might look quite good, 
The friend who came along to document the performance has probably perished, <laughs> crushed under the rubble, or overcome by fumes. He won't have got any documentation shots of you that you can use. Okay, how much more? How much? Do you oh, want any more? You're, sus you're sustaining great. very well. That's great, yeah. Statistically, a number of you in the audience will dislike me and what I'm doing now. You don't actually like performance art, but somehow you are drawn to it like a weird moth to a weirder flame. Hating me quietly and cleverly while I put myself through my paces. I never want to show my bottom to clever people that may grow to dislike me. It's often the case that the performer must get changed in the curator's office. I like to keep my costume there beforehand so that my transformation is as worry-free as possible. Gagging on the smell of coffee, computers and curator musk I stow my wallet and mobile phone in my shoes for fear they will be stolen. There is no reason to think that thieves don't operate in an art gallery. I have my quick nosy around the curator's office, post-it notes with exotic artists' names, phone numbers, the elastic bands in a jar, a Polaroid of the curator, with an artist they really clicked with and still keep in touch with. That's when the uncertainty starts and your curator with a small head sticks his head around the door and asks if you're nervous and if he can get me a beer or something. I've got one, thanks. <laughs> I seldom have to share this changing room with another. Like boxers, performance artists try to destroy their opponent's confidence beforehand. <laughs> they will do this by eating a stuffed vine leaf or a large fig or any number of look-at-me foods and then offer one with oily fingers, friendly, then aloof, chatty, then sulky. They mean to destroy you. They are going to go out there to scream and holler and paint their bottoms blue. But before they do, while they get into the zone, they will prey on the weaker performance artist for fun. Although I lie at night worrying about my performance, agonizing over details, I take secret pleasure in watching artists have problems with incompatible DVD players at the last minute. Staring into the plastic case for an answer. In Amsterdam, I saw a Swiss-American artist in tears because of a broken projector, or beamer, as she called it. As a gesture of international support, I asked, can I get you a coffee or something? I can't think of such things right now, she said. I saw a bald man Repeat that horrible mantra as he tried to repair a broken theremin before a performance, a decaffeinated 
weekender Brian Eno, whose kids hate him. <laughs> so, my own perform fears of a bad performance or a bad response terrify me. Frightening thoughts hurtle through my mind all at once before I start. Performing is like speed walking through a series of smallish dreams. Nightmares. When my performances are documented, often the photographer sneaks round the back to take some photographs from behind me. After returning home, I take these rear view images into Photoshop and with the use of levels adjustment, I bring to the fore the faces of the audience who thought themselves hidden by the dark. I can see who was laughing and who was not. I have often been disappointed to find that people who I considered to be friends were not laughing, and worse, that some are even scowling. If they also have been temporarily afflicted with red eye, their countenance seems evil. And so the performance ends. Walking back to my dressing room, the curator with a small head says, that was great. How, 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 how did you think it went? Okay. Sorry about that. So Simon Jenkins <clears throat> has forgotten the rule, never be on a panel after a performance artist, <laughs> and uh, has volunteered to go last in, uh, in our series of uh, bright ideas, quickly delivered. Um, he has, of course, sustained both the Times and the Evening Standard as editor, and uh, uh, I particularly enjoy his his wonderful kind of uh, celebration of anonymous uh, artistic endeavour, which is the history of British uh, parish churches, which is a fantastic, uh, fantastic book if anyone has a chance to, to look at it. Um, Simon, you're going to talk to us about the enduring charms of Port Marion. Uh, very briefly, um, <laughs> never try to fill the gap between a Welsh poet and a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, unless you're a performance artist. Um, uh, I was fascinated by what John said, because I just totally agree with all of it. And I fell to thinking, um, I also chair the National Trust, and we were being told every 10 years, no one will ever go to, to scruffy old houses set in boring old parks when they can sit at home watching television. Um, we went through 4 million members this year. Uh, th there is something, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a disjunct in the analysis of modern culture, I believe, and I think the most exciting idea I've come across recently is the concept of post-digital. Um, and we are here post-digitally, uh, because otherwise we'd be in London. Um, most people have come from London, uh, and I'm fascinated by the question, when you left London, why the hell did you come to the west coast of Wales when you could have stopped in Milton Keynes? <laughs> you came because there was something here. Uh, and you wanted what they call a post-digital, back in California, a post-digital experience. Uh, Real people in real time, in a real place, uh, and not on the bloody screen. Uh, and that's why you're here. You could have done this all sorts of other ways electronically, but you didn't. And it's exactly the same answer as John gave in the case of the book. Um, uh, all I want to do very, very briefly is tell you when the sun shines tomorrow morning, <laughs> look about you. 
Um, it is the most extraordinary place, Port Merion. Uh, it is uh, the creation of Clough Williams Ellis, as, as, as Marianne said. Um, in about 1920, he, he was an Edwardian architect. He emerged out of the arts and crafts movement. He believed passionately in the authenticity of materials, craftsmanship, uh, traditional styles, um, scenery, the importance of scenery to architecture. Um, and he, he, he decided when uh, sprawling housing estates were flourishing in the 1920s to see if he could do a, what he regarded as the perfect settlement somewhere by the coast and see if it worked. And he hit on Portofino in Italy, of all places, uh, to translate into dear old Snowdonia, um, and, um, and uh, created it round the old hotel which we're staying in. Uh, he built a campanile up on the rock um, up there. He built cottages round it, much in the style of Italy and, to a certain extent, Greek, Greek islands. Um, it was facing a bay, which in summer is lovely in blue. Um, the trees were an integral part of the design. There was a piazza in the middle of it. Um, the whole thing, he called it, my, my, my trivial, single-minded, propagandist demonstration. He was making a point. Because William Zeres wasn't just a, 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 an old fuddy-duddy. He was something of a utopian. He believed if he, if he produced a really popular settlement, everyone would, everyone would want to copy it. After the Second World War, um, he sort of changed tack. Uh, it was a great success. People were renting cottages like mad. He was making money. Um, he then fell to rescuing, he called it a home for fallen buildings. Uh, he rescued fallen buildings from all over England. He, he um, bought this ceiling here, one of the finest Jacobean ceilings in the country. Um, took it, dismantled it, goodness knows how, re-erected it here, building a Jacobean house to put it in here. Um, uh, he, he, he simply went, everything he found, a colonnade, a portico, a gazebo, um, Gothic, Hindu, uh, classical, he didn't mind. He somehow fitted it into this landscape. He believed that every style, any style, could be made to fit. If you approached a, a, a development, a building, with dignity and courtesy and care and charm. Um, he was an eccentric. He had a sense of humor. Uh, the place was used as the set for the prisoner because it had a sense of mystery to it as well. Uh, people could get lost in tiny little alleyways, going upstairs, down into basements. Uh, everything about this place is curious and a bit funny. It was hated by the modernists. Um, Port Marion came to represent the great divide as the great brutalist um, concrete uh, land sort of steamroller was crumbling across urban Britain. Um, if you were not for it, you were for Port Marion. So you better be for it. Uh, it was extraordinarily powerful as a detracting magnet. Uh, and the more popular it became, the more the modernists hated it. And I'm afraid that's why I grew to love it. Uh, I love this place. I love its charm. I love its color. Uh, I love the fact that it's in Wales, where everything is black. Um, it's full of color. He, he was obsessed with color, color, color. Um, but he, he longed for someone to copy it. He longed for Port Marion to become the template for uh, housing estates, new towns all over England, and it never took off in, that, in those terms. Um, it, it ended up being a place where he just tipped anything he found in a sort of architectural car boot sale, St. Simeon for slow learners. Um, and, and I think, probably, he was, in, in the end, his own worst enemy. Uh, but um, it is a most charming place, and uh, in the end, Clough Williams Ellis got the last laugh. It is the only 20th century settlement that people pay money to go walk around. Uh, I hope you see it tomorrow in good light. Thank you very much. <laughs>